Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org. Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we're going to take another step towards exiting the cave by speaking with the philosopher and consciousness researcher Philip Goff. Philip is a researcher and professor, like I said, at Durham University in the UK. And his first academic book is titled Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2017. His second book, which is more for a general audience, uh, is called Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. And this book is now available in the U.S., um, if you happen to be listening there. So uh, I really enjoyed my conversation with Philip today. It was... um, it was a very fun talk, even though it was about, you know, very serious matters. And, um, and Philip has a great way of, you know, expressing and explaining very con- complicated uh, topics in a really easy to listen to way. Um, and we talked about panpsychism and consciousness generally in this episode. And, um, and I really enjoyed it, like I said, and I, and I hope you do as well. So without further preamble, here's my conversation with the philosopher Philip Goff. Well, so I'll, I'll have, you know, recorded um, an introduction to you and, and gone over all of your work, but am I correct that you're currently um, a philosopher at Durham University in the UK? Yeah, that's right. Okay, okay. Um, and then, so you've written two books on this topic, um, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, which was an academic book, and then your first book aimed at a wider audience was Galileo's Error, correct? Yep. That's right. Okay, cool. And, um, and also, if people are interested um, in reading this before we talk about it, I'll link to um, the, the reason I found you, which was the, um, the article that you wrote in Philosophy Now. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that was back in 2017. It was a while back. I can't remember exactly when, but it was a while back. Yeah, I, I guest edited an edition of that. Was that late? Was that the same thing? Yeah, I guest edited edition. So um, there were a yeah. few different articles on panpsychism and related views yeah um and it's it's a great introduction to sort of you know the uh, the bare bones of of panpsychism um if people want to read that um before before listening to this episode but i thought we could start because i've covered you know uh, kind of theories of consciousness on the show before but i don't want to assume that people know too much mm. about it coming into this um so i thought we might want to begin with you know, talking about what exactly we mean by consciousness and panpsychism, which is a possible answer to it. Yeah, that's a, a really good starting point because it is quite an ambiguous word, consciousness, and people use it in different ways and it can really lead to confusion. Some people use it to mean something quite sophisticated like self-consciousness, awareness of your own existence. That's something we might be reluctant to ascribe to non-human animals or at least to many non-human animals Um, but the way philosophers tend to use it I mean the way it's generally used in in the philosophy and science of consciousness it just means experience so pleasure pain itches uh, anxiety feelings of anxiety um, the tactile sensations of the chair against your body, any kind of subjective experience. So this is certainly something we're not reluctant to ascribe to many non-human animals, sheep, rabbits, mice, have some kind of experience. And that's all we really mean by, by consciousness. 
Mm-hmm. You, I, I just wanted to quote, you had like a, a really great way of phrasing things in the, um, the philosophy now article, you said, um, panpsychism is sometimes caricatured as the view that fundamental physical entities such as electrons have thoughts that electrons are say driven by existential angst. However, panpsychism as defended in the contemporary philosophy is the view that consciousness is a fundamental and ubiquitous uh, aspect of reality where to be conscious is simply to have subjective experience of some kind. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really good way of putting it because, you know, to the lay, you know, person, you know, the, this idea of panpsychism could almost come across as this very spooky idea that everything is sort of humming with the same frequency that we have. And it's almost, you know, like to be a mini human, you know, to be like an atom or something like that, which as yeah. you clarify is not the case at all. Yeah, no, that's a really important clarification. So, you know, human experience is incredibly rich and complex, involving detailed visual experiences, abstract thought, deep emotions. But, um, you know, the experience of a horse is, is much simpler than that of a human. The experience of a mouse is simpler still. And as we get to simpler and simpler forms of life, we find simpler and simpler forms of experience. The panpsychist view is is this keeps on going right down to the basic building blocks of reality with maybe electrons and quarks having unimaginably simple forms of experience to correspond to their unimaginably simple nature. So, I mean, it, we, we tend to think of panpsychism in a particle ontology that the the fundamental forms of consciousness are at the micro level um, of fundamental attached to fundamental particles but we can also i mean that's it's not entirely uncontroversial uh, that particles are the fundamental building blocks of the physical world many f- theoretical physicists tend to think in a th- in a field ontology where the fundamental constituents of reality are universe-wide fields um, and then particles are understood as local excitations in those fields so you could have a panpsychist view where those uh, the fundamental forms of consciousness are are associated with those universe-wide fields but in either case yes as you say this is not nothing like human consciousness Mm. this is just very very rudimentary forms of experience this is not agency or thought or rationality very very simple forms of experience um the other qualification is that's often misunderstood is it doesn't literally mean everything is conscious uh the idea is the fundamental building blocks of reality are conscious maybe particles maybe fields but it doesn't mean every random arrangement of particles. It doesn't mean rocks and socks and tables and chairs are conscious. It just means perhaps that they are ultimately constituted of things that are conscious. Again, in the sense of having very, very simple forms of experience. Mm. Yeah, and I want to drill down on that in a minute. But um, I'm curious, are you comfortable with um, Thomas Nagel's, um, the, the way he phrased kind of what consciousnesses where he said you know um it is something is conscious if it is like something to be that object so for instance you know if i were to you kind of have to play a little loose with the english language here but if i were to swap places with you know this glass of water for instance that might be synonymous with you know kind of 
the lights going out for me. But if I were to swap places with you or with, you know, a sheep, it wouldn't be um, synonymous with the lights going out, um, especially in your case, but in the sheep's case, it would just be kind of a dimming of the light of consciousness. Yeah, that's a very nice way of putting it. Absolutely. I would sign up to, to the Nagel, the, the um, way of characterizing consciousness associated with Thomas Nagel in his paper from the seventies. What's it like to be a bat? He wasn't the first person to use this language for consciousness. Um, the panpsychist Timothy Sprigg actually used it earlier, and you can trace it back, you know, to 19th century literature, people talking about consciousness in these terms, what it's like to be someone. But I think Nagel was the first person to explicitly define consciousness in those terms. So as you mm. say, there's, there's something that it's like for a rabbit to be cold or to be kicked or to have a knife stuck in it, to get the vivid example. There's <laughs> nothing that it's like for a table to be cold or to be kicked or to have a knife stuck in it. There's nothing that it's like from the inside, as it were, to be mm. a table. So yeah, that's 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 what we mean by consciousness. And it's a I think at least it's a very flexible notion. In humans it's in very sophisticated forms, but it could conceivably exist in in very, very simple forms. Mm. And I've I've you know, I'm I'm not super familiar with the entire field here, but it seems to me like there are some philosophers um who almost seem to be denying that we have subjective experience in order to get out of these, um, you know, kind of problems. Someone like maybe, you know, an earlier Dan Dennett, for instance, um, in his paper, Quining Qualia, where he's, he's seeming to almost <laughs> eschew the idea that we even do have experience. I, I'm just curious. I mean, that, that seems I, like, I don't even know where to go with someone who believes yeah. that because, you know, it's like, wh wh who, who's asking the question then at that point, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so someone who, Keith Frankish, a good friend of mine, is someone who um, defends this kind of view that's become known as illusionism, that hmm. we, the brain tricks us, it's an illusion into thinking we're conscious when we're not really. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it gets slippery because, as you say, maybe Daniel Dennett these days would be prepared to say he believes in consciousness in some sense, and Keith Frankish, um, you know, w when I read his stuff, I thought, that he would be happy to say nobody's ever felt pain. And in my book, Galileo's Error, I described his book that way. But actually, in our Twitter discussions, he <laughs> Twitter's this, the source of all knowledge these days. He said, no, he does think pain exists. Uh, he just resists a certain philosophical characterization of it. I mean, the way to get precise on their view is that the only data a theory of consciousness needs to explain are the data of third person observation and experiment. So, you know, behavior, mm -hmm. what people say, but, but what people say, we just mean, you know, the movement of their lips, the, you know, the, the, what we can observe. That's mm. what we need. We're not using the, what they say as testimony to tell us about their consciousness that we can't observe. We're just looking at the observable movement of the lips and tongue. That's the data of consciousness. Uh, whereas, I think that's a pretty fringe view uh, that, you know, the mainstream view would be the data of consciousness. What we need to explain are the subjective qualities of our experience that, that are not observable from the third person perspective. I can't look inside your head and see your feelings and experiences. Uh, 
we know about consciousness not from observation and experiment but from our immediate awareness of our feelings and experiences the colors the sounds the smells and the taste that's that first person reality is what we need explaining whereas Dennett and Frankish say no the only um thing we need explained are what is accessible from the third person perspective um and you know to be fair to them I suppose they're they're being consistent in a way I think <laughs> I think a lot of people do think that's what that's all science is about explaining the data of third person observation experiment and they say well that's what it's about so don't believe in consciousness because that's not known about in that way uh, whereas I think a lot of people are in a sort of confused in between stage where they don't want to agree with Dennett that consciousness doesn't exist, but they don't follow the implication of that, that there is another datum on over and above the data of observation experiment, mm. namely the reality of consciousness. That's not something we know from observation experiment. It's something we know in a very different way, but it, we, it's real. And so we need to account for it in our overall theory of reality. And that proves pretty tricky. <laughs> um, just, just one more thing on this, if I may. Yeah. Your point, you know, the familiar reaction. Uh, does this even make sense? Who's <laughs> suffering the illusion? Um, I think actually it maybe depends on the relationship between thought and consciousness uh so actually probably still the mainstream position in analytic philosophy of mind is you know the anglo-american philosophy is that thought really has nothing to do with consciousness consciousness is one thing thought is some is a totally different phenomenon that we account for in a different way if that's correct then it is at least coherent to say we think we are conscious when we're not really. Whereas I, I guess I, I'm from the growing minority of philosophers who think that's really misguided, that thought just is a kind of consciousness, a very sophisticated, highly evolved form of consciousness. So if that view is true, then it doesn't make sense to say, hmm. I think I'm conscious when I'm not, because thought just is a kind of consciousness. But, you know, I just want to flag up, there is a, there, there is a point of controversy there, that, that whether or not illusionism is coherent mm. depends on. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to have all these views explored. Some of my anti-materialist comrades get annoyed at even taking illusionism seriously. But I think, you know, mm. thousand flowers bloom. Who knows what the truth is? Let's see what let's see what comes out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting because, you know, if you have a scientific background, I think that's the immediate position you're drawn to. And it was, it was, I mean, you know, when I kind of started learning about this in college, it was almost the default position that I assumed. Um, but, but it's, it is weird to, to ask, like, you know, I, I almost question if it, it almost seems like Dennett is admitting that there is something, you know, inexperienced that he is then eschewing, which is, it's almost like, you know, to be mistaken about consciousness assumes that like there is something to be mistaken about, you know? Mm. Um, and I guess I just, you know, I don't understand how that group of philosophers can, can kind of get around that issue where it's like, you know, to be mistaken, <laughs> you know, 
admits that there is some someone some some experience of being mistaken about what it is um it does it does seem to kind of bite its own tail in that sense yeah i think you're right and i think there's a lot of too quick arguments from empirical evidence that we sometimes get our experience wrong Mm. to well we can't trust anything about it or we don't know anything about it or maybe it doesn't exist um was I, you know, I, I'm happy to say we make mistakes about our conscious experience. We, we, you know, we might, um, I mean, there are classic sort of thought experiments here where, um, um, what, what do you call these? This is an American thing, frat, fraternity initiation things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where you, there's this, you know, the story where, um, you know, the, the blindfold this student in an initiation ceremony and then tell them they're going to stab them. Mm. and then build them up there you know this fear and stick some ice in them <laughs> uh and they feel cold but they they think they're in pain and they so some people press this saying this is it could be an example where we think we're in pain uh when actually we feel cold we mistake our consciousness i don't know you know i'm i'm um, open to that there's other things you can say to resist that claim mm-hmm. but just because you make a mistake about it doesn't mean um you never get it right or there's nothing we can know about our, our, our conscious experience. And, um, but yeah, I, well, I don't want to defend the illusion time, but I, I still think <laughs> if, if thought and mental representation is distinct from consciousness, then it at least makes sense to say, maybe I'm representing myself as conscious when I'm, when I'm actually not at all. Mm. Um, my worry with that is I don't think you can really make, I mean, this comes down to um, the old John Searle Chinese room thought experiment. I think really what that was trying to show is you don't just, if you just have kind of inputs and outputs and, you know, information processing, you don't really have thought or understanding or mental representation um but that's controversial some people think no information processing you ca- that is that is mental representation and if that's right then i think the illusionist view at least makes sense the way I, I mean i would just reject it because i think the old cartesian reason i think i'm more certain of the reality of my experience than anything else i, I don't even have to go to say total certainty um just you know it's very easy to imagine I'm in the matrix, this table isn't really in front of me, but if I'm in pain and I attend to my pain, the idea I'm not really feeling pain is, I mean, mm. I just feel you've got to start philosophy somewhere. And it seems to me the reality of our feelings and experiences and the qualitative character of them that we can to a large extent apprehend through attending to them, that seems to me more evident than anything else apart from perhaps mm. math and logic so i don't know what possible argument would persuade me uh what possible empirical argument would persuade me to give up on that because it seems to me more evident than any empirical facts about the external world 
Yeah, it just, I don't know. I mean, it seems like Dennett's view would be falsified by just, you know, him putting his hand over a hot stove. I mean, if, if he has any doubts that he experiences things, you know, that's a really quick way to sort it out. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sel once said, um, it's like these people are feigning amnesia. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think we're going through a phase of history where people are so blown away by the success of physical science and the incredible technology it has this kind of visceral effect on you and it leads you to think this is this is everything this is the complete truth yeah. and you know everything else seems so backward and old-fashioned and magical in um and but what i try to argue is that physical science has been so successful precisely because from Galileo onwards, this is the title of my book, Galileo's Error, from Galileo onwards, it was focused on a quite narrow, specific task, mm. you know, roughly constructing mathematical models to predict the behavior of matter. Uh, and Galileo was quite explicit that we need to ignore certain things if we want to mm pursue that project specifically consciousness he said we need to you know forget about that that's in the soul or the animated body you know take that out just focus on what you can capture in mathematics and Galileo really taught us to just limit the scope of science since he did that it's gone in you know incredibly well and, and people think oh that means it's everything but no it's gone very well because it wasn't supposed to cover everything so that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't imply, you know, the falsity of materialism or anything, but I think it's a way of thinking about the history of science that I think such a strong narrative in people's minds is, wow, look at the success of science. Yes, there's a problem with consciousness, but physical science will one day crack it because look how successful it's been. I think that's so influential and so, so wrong because the reason physical science has been so successful is because it was designed to ignore consciousness. Mm. You know, I think if Galileo were to time travel to the present day and hear about this hard problem of explaining consciousness in terms of physical science, he'd say, you know, of course you can't do that. I designed <laughs> physical science to ignore consciousness, to focus on just what you can capture in mathematics. But um, yeah, so I think it's yeah. a period that I, you know, I think materialism I mean, we might get on to why, but I think Judaism is, is pretty implausible and it's not, it's pretty straightforward. And I think it's, it's that narrative that I've just outlined that makes people want to embrace it despite its in, inherent implausibility. Mm -hmm. And, and just to kind of close the loop on that, uh, you know, when you, when you reference, you know, the hard problem of consciousness and, and materialism's answer to that, um, it, it's, you know, it, I think it would, you know, you could put it as, you know, it, it would almost seem like a miracle that we would find a materialistic correlation to consciousness. You know, let's just say that we find, you know, that consciousness exists when you have 5,724 neurons wired up in this certain pattern. You know, that's, it's like, okay, you know, I, I don't believe that that could be a false fact, but it would just seem like almost a miracle that consciousness you know, did correlate with that condition and not some other condition. And it, it seems to merely explain, you know, this brute fact that consciousness correlates with those states, yes. but it wouldn't give us any, any epistemic insight on why or how even. 
Um, and that's, yeah. yeah, the way that Chalmers, I guess, kind of explains it in, um, in facing up to the problem of consciousness. Yeah, so I think what we can get at experimentally is, as you say, the correlations between um, various kinds of brain activity and various kinds of experience. Um, I mean, what, another way of saying why consciousness is, is, just, is not just another scientific problem is that consciousness is not publicly observable, as, <laughs> as we've already discussed. You, yeah. And, you know, science is used to dealing with unobservables, but it's very different in this case because in all, in all other cases, we postulate unobservables in order to explain what we can observe. Whereas in the case of consciousness, the thing we are trying to explain is not publicly observable. And, you know, so it's a, it's a totally, it's a totally different explanatory task. You know, generally science is third, per, you know, third person observable data trying to explain that. But this is trying to explain these subjective qualities that are not publicly observable, but that we're immediately aware of. It's a, just a totally different um, explanatory enterprise. That's another way of seeing, you know, the fact that physical science has been good with one explanatory task doesn't mean it's going to, be able to deal with this quite different expansion task but um where was i going with that so so <laughs> what but what we can do experimentally we can't observe consciousness publicly but we can ask people and mm. we can scan their brains with an fmri and we can ask them what they're experiencing and we can correlate their experience with their brain activity and we can try and get more systematic about this we can explore what's term the neural correlates of consciousness we can try and find necessary and sufficient conditions in in the brain for consciousness that's an and you raise an interesting challenge with that um you know why would it be precisely this number of neurons um well i mean one way around that i mean if you take for example the integrated information theory um which is one proposal for the neural correlates of consciousness there claim is that you get consciousness at the system when you have more integrated information in the whole mm. than in the parts and that could be actually something utterly precise it could be mm. you know just the extra neuron getting involved in there and you might think oh that's really arbitrary but then there's a way of making it non-arbitrary by saying what 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 the threshold that's passed with that extra neuron is there's more integrated information in the system than its parts. So actually I'm not so, so opposed to that. I'm not mm. opposed at all to that um, project to try and correlate the physical with consciousness. But then as you, as you rightly went on to say, that's not a theory of consciousness because ultimately we want to explain those correlations. Why is it that various kinds of brain activity are correlated with various kinds of experience if if it is integrated information that's correlated with experience why is that why should integrated information be correlated with experience um and and it, because consciousness is on a, is not publicly observable i don't think you can answer that question with an experiment sadly you just get more correlations so at that point i think we have to turn to philosophy and just explore the various options explanations philosophers have tried to offer the materialist offers one the dualist offers another the panpsychist offers another and just and these are all at least in certain forms empirically equivalent you can't distinguish between them with an experiment 
So what do we do? We could just be agnostic or, or we could try to choose between them on the basis of non-experimental considerations. Mm. Um, and I think when you when you try and do that, the panpsychist option sort of wins hands down because there are just you know, deep difficulties with with the other more conventional options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's how I see it. I kind of think there's a the scientific bit trying to map out these correlations and then the philosophical bit is explaining why physical brain activity is correlated with experience there's a, a division of labor there <laughs> um and you know i hope i hope one day it will all be part of science i think it becomes science when the rules of the game are broadly agreed on but at mm-hmm. the moment they're not so it's for the moment it's in the second bit is it is in the realm of philosophy Mm. And I guess, you know, if we do sort of adopt the view of, of panpsychism, if we do take that as our running theory, it does almost, you know, sort of open up, you know, its own branch of science, uh, really, which, which would be very interesting. But I guess, you know, before we get to that, so, you know, from, from your perspective, um, if you could just explain, so how, how does the panpsychist view um, make sense of consciousness? How does it account for it? Um, give people the, the rundown. Yeah, good. So the the kind of panpsychism I defend is inspired by this really interesting approach to consciousness pursued by Bertrand Russell in the in the 1920s in his book The Analysis of Matter. Uh that and also by the scientist Arthur Eddington who was incidentally the first scientist to confirm experimentally Einstein's theory of general relativity which made Einstein an overnight celebrity. <laughs> Um, but so I, I think they, this was a really exciting approach and it was forgotten about for a long time. I often say that this is, these guys did for the science of consciousness, what Darwin did for the science of life. And then it's because of the great depression and the war and anti-philosophy zeitgeist of the post-war years, it got forgotten about, uh, but it's recently been rediscovered. And, you know, it's, it's a huge number of publications and volumes on this view that's become known as Russellian panpsychism because of the, the Russell inspiration there. Mm. So, yeah, so the starting point is that physical science doesn't really tell us what matter is. And that's, I mean, I when I first heard that, I thought, what the hell does that mean? You know, <laughs> you, read a, you read a physics textbook you learn about space and time and matter that you know but i think that the the claim is that actually upon reflection it turns out that for all its richness physics is confined to telling us about the behavior of matter what it does physics tells us for example that matter has mass and charge and these properties are completely defined in terms of behavior things like attraction, repulsion, resistance to acceleration. It's all about what stuff does. And when you're talking about what stuff does, you're talking about really the relationships between things, you know, the relationships between electrons and quarks. And um, this kind of information tells us nothing about what an electron is in and of itself, what is generally called in this context, the intrinsic nature of the electron, what it is, considered independently of what it does um i sometimes give a chess piece analogy i don't know whether this is helpful but 
if you're playing chess, you know, you're interested in what the pieces do, what moves you can make, what pieces they can you can take. But if you're someone who collects luxury high-end chess pieces, you're going to want to know about the substance of them. You know, are they made of gold or metal, you know, gold or plastic? Um, so this is you interested in the, the intrinsic nature rather than what, rather than the behavior. So, you know, you, I'm sure it's very interesting what physics has to tell us about the behavior of an electron, but we might also want to know its intrinsic nature, what an electron is in itself. Um, so the thought is, so what's this got to do with consciousness? The thought is there's this huge hole in our standard scientific story of the universe. Physics tells us what stuff does, but not about its intrinsic nature. And then the proposal is, well, maybe we can put consciousness in the hole. So we're looking for a place for consciousness. We've got a hole. Let's try and put consciousness in the hole. So the, the idea is there's, there's this is radically non-dualistic. Uh, there's just matter, particles, fields, but matter can be understood from two perspectives. Physics describes it, as it were, from the outside in terms of its behavior, what it does, but matter from the inside in terms of its intrinsic nature is constituted of forms of consciousness. So it's a way of bringing together what we know about the world from physical science and what we know about the reality of consciousness from our immediate awareness of our experiences, bringing them together in a single, elegant, unified picture of reality. So yeah, that's the basic idea. Yeah, Obviously, there are a lot of details. <laughs> yes, um, but I, I guess it's interesting and important to 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 harp on what you said about it not being a dualistic um, yes idea because you know I, I think a lot of people that that might go over their head in the sense that. Um, you know, it's not that we have these kind of two fundamental um, aspects of realities. There's the physical and the mental. It's not that. It's that consciousness, if I understand you correctly, is itself a. It's a. It's almost a property, but it's it's almost deeper of that. It's it's almost like a definition um, of matter, and it expresses itself almost, or it's observable, in terms of you know classical newtonian mechanics or quantum mechanics you know however we want to study matter um on any level explicitly and it's not attributing you know it's not attributing mind to bodies it's saying that they're they're you know it's just it's just one thing um and it's i guess it would be the reverse side of the coin of something like kant's you know transcendental idealism um, where he's saying you know again he agrees with you that there's only one um, kind of constituent of the universe, but but he would say that it's all mental, um, and that you know it kind of expresses itself in ways that that seem observable, um, you know, like like physical reality would be. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 another very common misunderstanding. The um, when people think about panpsychism, they they always think of it dualistically, like we're saying electrons have their physical properties like mass spin and charge hmm. and also these weird consciousness properties the um physicist sabine hossenfelder had a blog post that got quite a lot of attention critiquing panpsychism and she was interpreting it this way and she's saying well look physics shows no sign of these weird consciousness properties but that's just to misunderstand the view the view is that 
not that there are two kinds of properties, but that mass spin and charge are forms of consciousness. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That sounds kind of strange and hard to make sense of. I, I mean, I said that to her and then she said, okay, well, you're just redefining consciousness. But the, the, the point is, physics doesn't tell us what mass, spin and charge are. It just tells us what they do. Mm. So this leaves open the theoretical possibility that they might be forms of consciousness. So, yeah, I mean, so if you go back to the chess game, you could play the game without having a clue what the pieces are made of. Uh, I, I guess I think that's what, when you're doing physics, that's what you're doing. You know what the pieces do, you know what mass, spin and charge do, but you don't really know what they are. Mm. Um, so that leaves open the possibility that they could turn out to be forms of consciousness. I mean, why think that? Well, because we we need to we know consciousness exists we need to find a place for it in our world view mm. um and this is a, a possibility that are, that avoids the deep difficulties with other options yeah it'd be very difficult to, different to Kant. i mean kant's view actually was is that we have no clue as to what reality is like in and of itself we don't mm. we don't know anything about it the noumenal realm as he called it um I mean, my strongest disagreement of that is, I, I think, in line with Russell, that there's one thing about reality as it is in and of itself we know about, namely our own consciousness. You know, that that, that is part of reality that I think, at least to an extent, we understand. And um, so I think when I'm attending to my pain or my experience of red, that is part of the intrinsic nature of my brain. Uh, that I'm immediately apprehending, so that's mm. that's the, that's the view. It's consciousness is what matter really is. Um, you know your brain better than the brain scientist does. The brain scientist knows a lot about what your brain does and what its parts do, but you apprehend the intrinsic <laughs> nature of your brain. Um, mm. Yeah. So that's the. Um, so yeah. so yeah. So it's a much more Kant's view is sort of. We don't really know what reality is like. Epistemically humble. This is no, we do know what it's like. It's it's made of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And and I guess you know the the sort of logical immediate next question is, and I believe this is kind of termed as the combination problem of, you know, okay, well, let's say I buy that you know consciousness it has these um, ways of expressing itself. Well, you know, w- one could easily ask, you know, how. Or, or why do we have this seeming, you know, combination, this swelling up from like the ground source of consciousness from, you know, it, this, this idea that there's this very, very dim light going on at the, the, you know, the smallest level where then it expresses itself, you know, between you and I having a conversation. How do we bridge that gap? Yeah, yeah. So it's all very well postulating consciousness of particles but ultimately what we want to explain <laughs> via that postulation is the the consciousness of humans and animals how do we bridge that gap from the consciousness of particles to systems level consciousness the consciousness of the brain or parts of the brain um so yes yeah, so this is a very deep challenge and much of the energy of the contemporary panpsychist research program is is spent on on addressing this uh, and i talk a lot about some various work 
um, in, in my book, Galileo's Error. Um, so broadly speaking, there are two approaches, um, a strong emergentist and a weak emergentist approach. So the strong emergentist approach postulates extra laws of nature to bridge the gap. So it might just be just a fundamental law that when you have conscious particles in certain combinations, you get consciousness corresponding to the system as a whole. Um, and we would look to neuroscience to guide us as to what those principles are. So for example, coming back to the integrated information theory, suppose you are persuaded that um, that, that theory was correct, then the strong emergentist panpsychist would say, okay, it's just a fundamental law of nature that when conscious particles are arranged in a system mm. such that there is more integrated information in the whole than in the parts, you get consciousness associated with the system as a whole. And the philosopher Hedda Hassel-Murk has done some interesting work um, spelling out this kind of story in, in the context of emergentist panpsychism. So that's, that's one option. And... Um, um you know i i mean i i, I so some people think there are, there are empirical difficulties here because some people think um if there were these strongly emergent forms of consciousness they'd really show up in our neuroscience you know and hmm. they'd really make their presence felt uh, and i you know i've spent a lot of time taking that worry seriously and and I could explain to you in a, in a moment how I would get around that worry. But actually, the more I talk to neuroscientists, that the less I'm convinced that this is something we have empirical grounds for worrying about. Hmm. Um, you know, I just, we're, we're still very early in our understanding of the brain. And I mean, for example, I, the, the neuroscientist Kevin Mitchell, who I've been just debating with on Twitter again, <laughs> thinks there are, you know, strongly emergent forms of causation in the brain and thinks that's perfectly consistent with everything neuroscience tells us. So if, if that's right, then there really is no empirical worry with this emergentist form of mm. panpsychism. Other people say, um, why not just be a dualist uh, if you're going to postulate these fundamental principles? But I've tried to argue that even if we take the strong emergentist route, panpsychism ends up still being a much more simple elegant unified picture of nature than dualism because we don't have this radical divide in nature between two mm. kinds of thing two kinds of property we've just got one kind of thing and humans are a sort of highly evolved form of that okay so that's the strong emergentist route uh the weak emergentist route tries to do without base extra laws of nature and just just say the mere fact that certain particles are arranged in a certain way is in itself sufficient to get consciousness of the whole brain um conscious did i say that right the mere fact that conscious particles are arranged in a certain way is sufficient to have mm -hmm. consciousness corresponding to the brain as a whole you know and i think no one's yet been able to fully make sense of this there's been really good work for example by luke roloffs has got a book by oxford university press called combining minds mm. um but so no one's quite made sense of that. So some people say, okay, well, we've not made progress here. You know, materialism has explanatory challenges, but so does panpsychism. So we've not made progress. But I think there is a difference in that with the materialist 
explanatory gap, there are radically different concepts on either side of the gap. You know, mm -hmm. we've got this challenge of the, 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 the purely quantitative concepts we use to describe the matter of the brain and the qualitative concepts we use to describe our consciousness, the colors, the sounds, the smells, the taste. Um, and I think these are just radically different kinds of concept. And I think there are good philosophical reasons to think because there's such different kinds of concept, you just can't really bridge that gap. Whereas in for the panpsychist, it's the same kinds of concepts on either side of the gap. So even if we haven't um, totally worked out how to bridge that gap, it doesn't, it, there aren't the same in principle reasons to think it's impossible. So, um, so I, I'm talking quite a long time, but <laughs> so I think there are challenges with both the strong emergentist and, and the reductionist panpsychist approach, but there's, you know, the, there's still the problems are less worrying and I think the problems that face the other views. And, and just finally to say what, what I've formulated more recently, <laughs> Even if you so suppose you do think strong emergentist panpsychism is is empirically implausible in in opposition to what many neuroscientists would say, and suppose you think there's an unbridgeable explanatory gap for the reductionist panpsychist, what I've recently formulated and there's a paper on my website, um, how exactly does panpsychism explain consciousness, which is a sort of hybrid of the two options. Mm. So I distinguish. Conscious, conscious states from subjects of experience, the things, subjects being the things that have consciousness. And I try to articulate a strong emergentist view about subjects, subjects of experience, and a weak emergentist view about consciousness. So the idea is um, there are basic principles undergirding the emergence of conscious subjects, but these conscious subjects, when they emerge, don't come with their own radically new forms of consciousness and then we get the empirical worries rather they inherit forms of consciousness that are streams of consciousness that already exist at the mm. fundamental at the level of fundamental physics so i hope that th that this view just avoids all the problems altogether so we have the we avoid the expansion gap with these fundamental principles that govern the emergence of subjects and and their inheritance of streams of consciousness and we avoid the empirical worries because because these emergent subjects just inherit streams of consciousness from the fundamental level you wouldn't expect them to start behaving very differently um, mm. and so those empirical worries associated with dualism or strong emergentism just evaporate so I'm sorry, I, talk, I talked a very long time there, but I wanted to outline that there are two very healthy research programs here that have challenges, but are very, you know, hopeful. And even if they both fail, there's my hybrid approach, which hmm. avoids all the problems anyway. Yeah, <laughs> very neatly wrapped up. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 that is really interesting. And I'm, I'm trying to kind of grapple with, with the ideas there. Um, it, so I guess it, it would be, so I'm curious on your view, um, are you, are you saying that there's this sort of, you know, subsuming of the lower levels by the highest level, similar to almost, um, cause I was, I was just kind of thinking about it, um, with respect to Giulio Tononi's, um, integration of information theory, where he says, you know, it's, it's almost, um, 
because it, it seemed a little post hoc to me how he adds in that there's this sort of you know principle where um, you know the, the the highest level of organization um, or connectivity is the thing that is sort of the operating level of consciousness. Uh, and I'm curious. So so on your view, would uh, just you know maybe thinking about it in terms of the brain, would you say that there is something that it's like to be the cerebellum, and that you know, or, or the amygdala or any part of the brain, and that those combine to form sort of, you know, this, this brain level? Or is it that the, the interconnectivity of all of those subsystems is such that, you know, there isn't really something that it's like to be the amygdala on its own, um, but that they just, they all sort of stream into the brain level consciousness? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, the short answer is, I, I, I wouldn't have a a definite view because um i just think it's 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 so early mm. in in the science of consciousness and as i said i think there there's a division of labor here you know i mean partly what i'm trying to do is work out an explanatory framework that you could plug the empirical scientific theory into whether it be integrated information theory or global workspace theory or anything else and so the the answer to your question would, de would partly depend on which empirical theory you plugged in so if mm. you're uh, but also it might depend on 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 the philosophical bit as well so if you're more in the luke roloff's reductionist panpsychist camp where you're really trying to you're really trying to reduce everything to conscious particles and um then i think you're probably more inclined to think there's loads of different composite conscious things that the cerebellum you know that and the cerebellum is conscious but there's loads of consciousness going on and it you know it, it it's all a bit messy and whereas if you're in the strong emergentist camp um where you, you think there are these extra principles that bridge the gap, um, then you're probably going to think higher level forms of consciousness are more sparse, that there is some rule-governed combination, and that um, so probably... Um, okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so there's so less things are conscious on that view. Yeah, perhaps. on the strong okay. emergence. Okay. And probably on my hybrid view, because the, the, there's... there's basic principles of nature there as well it's probably mm. going to be more sparse and yeah i mean i integrated it's, it's not like i i mean integrated information i, I mean i just think probably the more i <clears throat> talk to neuroscientists and i probably think it's it's just sort of too ambitious to, to, to we really don't we really don't know enough to know the necessary and sufficient conditions of consciousness so integrated mm. information theory is is a stab at it and it's nice. I use it a lot as an illustrative example because it's a nice ex way of specifying a possibility. Hmm. And we can cash out the philosophical theory in terms of that possibility. But, you know, this is very, very early days. We, we still know so little about the brain and um, we haven't worked out the philosophy. Hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I don't have a this is my theory of consciousness. Um <laughs> I, I wouldn't I wouldn't even necessarily pin my flag on on panpsychism, um, although I think that's the most probable option. Uh, I think we need to be spelling out a, a lot of different options. 
Um, I suppose I feel that the the materialist option is the is the least plausible, but um, you know, let's let's try all these things out and hmm. s- see what works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, now in terms of sort of, you know, evaluating uh, each each theory of consciousness and adjudicating between them, is it? I mean, you know, I take it that the the thing you know, that we're evaluating these on are, are sort of, you know, logical principles of like internal consistency, um, whether they can explain all aspects of consciousness that we're, that we're looking to be explained. Um, is there any, because, you know, you know, obviously we're not, yeah, we're not scanning the brain and, 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 you know, determining which theory, you know, panpsychism or epiphenomenalism based on the brain scans. So is there, is there something that I'm missing or is it purely, which is sort of, you know, the most logically satisfying and consistent? It's a good question, Jordan. So I think we do, we need to get precise on what exactly we want of a theory of consciousness. The way, what I say is that a theory of consciousness has to satisfy two constraints, which mm-hmm. I call an internal constraint and an external constraint. The external constraint is to fit the data the, the, the data of correlations that we get from neuroscience, that evolving experimental project. And the internal constraint is to eliminate explanatory gaps where we go, f- an explanatory gap is where you have emergence without explanation. So you have X emerging from Y with just no account of how that happens. Hmm. So I think it's it's kind of easy to satisfy one of these but it's hard to satisfy both. <laughs> I think that the, 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 the dualist, I think, can deal with expansion gaps by, I mean, the David Chalmers style naturalistic dualist uh, just postulates basic psychophysical laws to bridge the gap between um, the physical facts and the facts of conscious experience. I think that's a perfectly legitimate way of explaining something. Science appeals to fundamental law all the time, but there's a, but there's some people worry that it, it, it gets into trouble with the empirical data for the reasons we've talked about. If there are non-physical properties in the brain, wouldn't they show up in our science? Uh, so there's potential empirical worries there. And with um, conversely, with physicalism, I think they have no problem with the empirical data, but they have this monstrous explanatory gap at the core of the view. How do we get from the purely quantitative properties of physical science to the qualitative properties of consciousness and no one in my view has ever made the slightest progress closing that gap and i think there are good principal reasons to think it can't be closed so so what we need to do is yeah try and do both have a theory that accounts for the emergence of human and animal consciousness in an explanatory and empirically adequate way and I think panpsychism has the best job of doing that. I mean, if it turns out that there are more multiple options, I, I think it may turn out that there are, you know, some forms of dualism and some forms of panpsychism are just can can perhaps both do this. Um, and then I think, well, we just we just go for the theory that's more simple, elegant, and unified. And that's how we do science. You know, there's 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 always an infinite number of for any empirical data. There's always an infinite number of theories that could account for that data. Hmm. Uh, you know, and if you don't believe me, you know, just take a, a scientific theory and add an 
epiphenomenal angel to its postulation, <laughs> you know, an angel that doesn't do anything. That theory ex explains all the same data, and you could add another one, you could add another one. I mean, that's a silly example, but hmm. uh, it just makes the point that, that, that we always, what we do is we, we go for the, the simplest, the most elegant, the most unified. Um, so I think that's, you know, that, that might be how it ends up with consciousness, that we just, we just go for the simplest. And, but the, there are those other criteria first that hmm. are more important, and if we can get those done, then, you know, we're making some progress closing explanatory gaps and fitting the data yeah yeah that's that's really interesting and i i look forward to i want to check out your uh your new paper you said it's it's published on your website on that it's yeah it's under it's currently under peer review but it's um it's it's on my website uh okay. as in uh how exactly does panpsychism explain consciousness so okay not not, uh, not published as yet Hopefully okay. will okay. be at some point. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Peer review takes a long time. You know, you wait yeah. months and then you get rejection. You send it somewhere else <laughs> and you get a rejection and it breaks your heart a little bit every time. But that's that's how academia works. It's so. the nature of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Philip, thank you so much for uh, for coming on. And um, and if people want to find out more about your work, uh, what exactly is the, the title of your website? Where can people find you? Um, PhilipGoffPhilosophy.com. And I have a blog with a horrible name, conscienceandconsciousness.com. That's the link to from my website. Oh, I spend a lot okay. of time on Twitter, which is at Philip under slash Goff. That's Philip with one L and Goff, G-O-F-F. -F. So, uh, yeah. And I'll take away the, uh, the spelling issues. Um, so, so I'll link all of this in the description below for people. Um, Brilliant. Thanks a lot. That's what that yeah. Was, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. And the, pa the paperback of my book is is now out in the US. So I just remembered my publisher keeps telling me to say that. Is, uh, <laughs> Excellent. It, it was a, yeah, it took a year for the paperback to come out. But um, yeah, very accessible introduction to the problem of consciousness, tracing it back to its foundations in the scientific revolution. So um, the perfect present for your partner at Christmas. <laughs> Sorry, yes. I was joking. No, Flip. it. Fitting in that advert <laughs> <laughs> could be the perfect gift if your partner is uh, interested in in these uh, in these philosophical topics. Yeah. It's so, very accessible. I hope. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it is based on your other writing that I've read. Um, so, all right, Philip, I'll let you go. But um, but thank you once again. Thanks a lot, Jordan. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank yeah. you. Okay, well, I hope that you enjoyed that episode. Um, like I said at the top, I I really enjoyed speaking with Philip. And if you want to know more um, about all of the links and, and sources that he referenced at the end, I will leave those in the description below. Um, if you want to support me and what I'm doing, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. And that link will, of course, be in this, the description below as well. Um, if you want to support the show in non-monetary ways, you can share it on Twitter or on social media. You can rate it on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can like or subscribe on YouTube or whatever podcast platform you're listening on. You can discuss it on your own show. And you can also reach out and connect me with recommended guests or topics to cover. Uh, you can contact me in several ways. Uh, Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And of course, all of these links will be in the description below. And as always, thank you for listening and keep struggling to escape the cave. Plato's Cave is produced by Muckraker Media. You can find out more at muckrakermedia.org.